0: And welcome back, George Norrie, along with Robert Sawyer. Robert, uh, we don't want to give away the ending of your book, of course, The Oppenheimer Alternative, but uh, what could you tell us about the surprise of the end?
1: Well, what I, you know, I said it was an alternate history novel, but it's really, I like to call it, a secret history of the Manhattan Project, because Oppenheimer himself said a bunch of really intriguing things. Uh, I think the most intriguing one is when he was asked, uh, as— you know, he gave a lot of lectures, uh, a student asked him in the audience, uh, was the um, Los Alamos explosion the first ever atomic bomb explosion? And Oppie said, yes, well, in, re- in uh, modern times, which is a really provocative statement, right? He had that little cavil. Yeah, well, maybe there's beforehand. That's so right. that figures in my novel, too, the idea that maybe uh, Los Alamos wasn't the first time somebody set off an atomic bomb.
0: Didn't Oppenheimer get the idea for the atomic bomb from reading ancient India transcripts or scripts?
1: So Oppenheimer, uh, he learned, actually, yes, the Bhagavad Gita, which was a Hindu, uh, a great Hindu epic poem. uh, He was intrigued by Eastern mysticism, so insufficiently intrigued that he taught himself Sanskrit so that he could read them in the original rather than read translation. And this famous line that's attributed to Oppenheimer having said, you know, uh, having occurred to him, he says, uh, when there was the uh, Los Alamos explosion, the first atomic bomb explosion on July 16th, 1945, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. That's his own translation from the Sanskrit of the Bhagavad Gita and absolutely the horrific Uh, visions of uh, Vishnu the destroyer uh, in uh, uh, the Bhagavad Gita Mm -hmm. certainly uh, presaged what happened with the atomic bomb.
0: And did he assume that Vishnu was the atomic bomb?
1: Well, it's interesting because, you know, he codenamed the project Trinity, right? And we think of Trinity, most of us in the West think of it, of course, as the Christian Trinity of God the Father and the
0: Holy uh, Ghost. The Son
1: and the Holy Ghost there's also a Hindu Trinity and uh, many have suggested that that's Oppenheimer himself never said, but it's suggested that that's what he was actually invoking. Uh, one of which of course is the destroyer of worlds in the Hindu Trinity.
0: I'm still baffled at how the writers on this Oppenheimer movie are talking about it as being the summer blockbuster. It's it's got to have an ending that must be unbelievable.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, Fascinating given this day and age where you can do anything with computer-generated imagery. If you can think of it, the CGI artist can render it. And yet, um, uh, the movie, Christopher Nolan's movie, doesn't use CGI for its atomic bomb blast when it shows that at the end of the movie. Instead, he did a practical effect. Now, one can argue that he had a huge carbon footprint by actually making one of the biggest the billion explosions ever in the history of the human race uh to do this magnificent effect which of course he uh captured on imax 70 millimeter uh film but uh yeah it's uh, uh gonna be scary as heck i mean you know very few people have seen an atomic bomb explosion and lived to tell the tale and uh christopher nolan is banking literally banking On the notion that an awful lot of us want to see that horrific fireball in excruciating detail.
0: It ended the war. Should we have used that bomb?
1: I don't think so. Um, And it's certainly a contentious issue to this day. But the reality was that Japan knew they were beat. They had been making back-channel overtures, diplomatic overtures, for over a year. That is since early 1944. Uh, to uh, negotiate a surrender. They had only one term that they insisted on. They insisted on their emperor, who they considered to be divine, Hirohito, to get to sit on his throne, not to be tried as a war criminal, not to be executed, but that Hirohito would retain his throne after uh, after a surrender. And unfortunately uh harry truman said no unconditional surrender is what he insisted upon now in reality the japanese actually got what they wanted hirohito was not tried as a war criminal hirohito sur- uh sat on the throne until the 1970s um when he finally did die of a ripe old age uh the one thing the japanese wanted they ultimately got but we weren't willing to concede it in advance if we had the war could have ended without the atomic bomb being used.
0: What would have happened had we gone to the Japanese leaders and said, we're going to demonstrate something for you. We're going to show you something on your remotest island or wherever where there was no people and just annihilate it and blow it up without killing
1: anybody. That's right. Leo Zillard, who was uh, the person who first envisioned the nuclear chain reaction that made possible the atomic bomb, uh, proposed that. You said, we got to do that. Let's invite them to Los Alamos, you know, under our word of honor, which Japanese would appreciate, right? A uh, very important, sacred word of honor. Bring some of your best observers to Los Alamos and watch as we do this and take the word back. You, as trusted emissaries, take it back to Hirohito and the Japanese high command. Uh, The other option was, as you said, to have, uh, you know, uh, announce a location and then drop it where there weren't any people. Well, General Groves, the military director of the Manhattan Project, said you can't do that for two reasons. One is, you do it at Los Alamos. They're just going to say, well, before we showed up, you buried 100,000 tons of TNT, conventional explosives, Mm -hmm. to fake an atomic bomb. Or if we said... You know, pick one of the uh, Japanese islands that's underpopulated or unpopulated, uh, and we'll do our test there. Well, they just would have taken all of our boys, all of the many uh, prisoners of war. They would have killed that, them. Uh, and, well, no, would have brought them to that site, right? Well, that's what I, I mean. Yeah, they would, yeah, would have, killed, would have them. killed them. That's right. That's right. So the practicalities, this is the thing about uh, Zillard. He was, uh, um, you know, a uh, an optimist, and possibly naive in thinking that we could have pulled off a test that would have been both convincing and not quite literally backfired on us. But uh, it probably was worth trying to demonstrate it.
0: It did stop the war. I mean, they did surrender after Nagasaki. The
1: war did end. The war did end, absolutely. And the Japanese did surrender. And, uh, you know, uh, the Japanese renounced militarism. They have the official name of the Constitution of Japan since World War II is the pacifist constitution. They are barred from the agreement uh, that led to their surrender from ever having a standing military
0: except
1: for a defense or you know, the kind of a, a rescue operations that our own militaries let's, sometimes get involved with. Let's but they've on. been forever barred from having an offensive military.
0: Let's go to the phones. Let's start with uh, John, truck driving in Ohio, first-time caller. Hi, John. Go ahead, sir.
2: Good morning, guys. I, uh, man, I'm really interested. I had so many questions, but I got one with Oppenheimer, and that's with the Rosenbergs. Was he aware of what was going on, that they were spies? And at the Yalta Conference, when Roosevelt was there, Stalin already knew that they had or was working on the Manhattan Project. So when Russia and China got the bomb, I'm kind of wondering how Oppenheimer felt. Did he feel responsible that he had unleashed that and also not only us, but, but Russia and China have it? And, and then real quick on that Japanese thing you were saying, as a science fiction writer, I got to kind of look at this a different way. You saved millions of lives that would have had to, and, and Japanese lives that would have died because we would have had to invade that mainland of of Japan.
1: Sure. And
2: the atom bomb stopped that. Now, what if we didn't drop that bomb and men went in there and died? And you changed the timeline somewhere where somebody might have done something and he's dead. (laughs) And the future kind of looks different because maybe out of those few, those millions of men that have died, somebody in there would have
1: changed the world in some way. Well, that's absolutely right. You know, uh, there are two schools of uh, history. There's the grand events school that says things were best, you know, we're going to happen. One way or another, we're going to have atomic bomb. We're going to land on the moon, blah, blah, blah. And then there's the great, it's sexistly called the great men theory of history, but great people, that certain key individuals, if they didn't exist, uh, history would have unfolded in a very different way. And, you know, Oppenheimer was uh, bad from flying during World War II. He had to, if he had to go from Los Alamos to, uh, say, to Berkeley, uh, where there was, uh, you know, the Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory, uh, he was supposed to take a train to do that because they were afraid that if there was a plane crash, the key man, the indispensable man, would be lost. Uh, so you're absolutely right that history often turns on We call it contingencies, very unlikely events. The uh, particular genius that Oppenheimer had for organizing this scientific research uh, cabal in uh, Los Alamos uh, was probably something that no other person could have pulled off.
0: The Soviets got their atomic bomb in 1949, China in 1964. Why did we let them get them?
1: So that's an interesting question. Had we our choice, of course, we would not have. As uh, John the trucker alluded, there was a lot of espionage. Uh, he mentioned uh, the Rosenbergs, and of course, there's also Claus
0: Pupin. Was it Julius uh, and, and Ethel?
1: Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. And um, Ethel was uh, a, a pawn in this. I mean, she was not really guilty of anything. Julius and David Greenglass, who uh, was also involved in that, were certainly uh, guilty uh, And uh, Oppenheimer felt enormously betrayed. He knew, of course, Klaus Fuchs uh, personally, uh, one of his physicists. And uh, Oppenheimer was naive. This was, you know, great people often have great flaws. And one of his flaws was he simply was not suspicious enough about the people around him uh, to recognize that there was a threat on Los Alamos. Uh, He just trusted that all the people were pulling in the same direction. And instead, of course, as as John uh, said on the phone call there, Stalin absolutely knew about the atomic bomb effort at the Yalta conference when uh, supposedly it was going to be the big uh, reveal that we had this. Uh, He said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's interesting because he already knew.
0: Well, 13 years later, after the Soviets got the atomic bomb, we had the uh, October 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis.
1: Absolutely. So this is the scary thing. You know, uh, as John said, well, maybe you see the atomic bomb in World War II. Maybe it saved lives. This is argued back and forth by historians uh, to this day. It saved American lives and even Japanese lives. But we came very close, very, very close. In 1962 to nuclear annihilation, uh, Khrushchev ultimately backed down. Kennedy and Khrushchev went toe-to-toe. And, again, we talk about the great man theory of history. If it had been a different guy, if it had been somebody a little more like that Putin,
0: Putin, we could have had a problem,
1: Khrushchev, then uh, I don't think he would have backed down. And we might very well have seen an awful lot of American uh, deaths, as well as deaths of people all over the world in what would have been world war three and it would have been fought uh 61 years ago now
0: and wasn't this all caused because we had weapons in turkey aimed at the soviet union that's
1: right that's right absolutely we were definitely the provocateurs we had put weapons you know uh icbm's intercontinental ballistic missiles but the shorter the distance the more effective they are and the less likelihood they can be shot out of the air. And the truth is,
0: Robert, with submarines, you don't have to put them on land
1: anymore. Now, that's right. Absolutely. But, yeah, we had provocatively put them in Turkey. They had responded by provocatively putting them in Cuba, which, of course, is a spinning distance, practically swimming distance of Florida. And certainly ICBM distance of Washington, D.C., and New York City, the capital, and also the most populous city in the nation, so, yeah, it was uh, toe-to-toe brinksmanship,
0: Next nuclear up, brinksmanship. Let's, let's go to Myatt in New York. Hello, Myatt. Go ahead.
3: Yes, good morning, gentlemen. Such an excellent program. Um, Robert, I'm going to ask for a uh, first appointment clarification and then about a three- Or so part and then I want to listen over the air so if you grab your pen first of all I didn't get the name of Sherman's and uh, the co-authors book so uh, the first part of my question uh, deals with um, you as a a speculative fiction writer I I kind of prefer that term and a recent guest mentioned um, Uh, Because you mentioned alternate history, Philip K. Dix, um, The Man in the High Castle, which I have not read, but looking forward to. So I want your thoughts if you've read it on that. And I stumbled across The Dispossessed by... Ursula K. Le Guin in a a Dollar General store, and it's hard to put down, and I'm so excited about reading her books. I'd like to know if you're familiar with uh, a woman's uh, speculative fiction and her history. Okay, the um, third part deals with, uh, and you had talked about AI. It seems like the baby woman's are the last ones to ha- have a normal life expectancy or longevity and, to, and also AI being able to preserve, you know, your, your your mind stuff and such. So I like some of your thoughts on whether you have any recommendations or incorporating into your work. And lastly, whether you're familiar with uh, Michael Bradley's, uh, it's called um, The Iceman Inheritance prehistoric sources of Western man's racism, sexism, and aggression. Now, back in 79—
0: I'm going to have to cut you off my head. You've got your three questions in, dear, and yeah. we're almost so
1: out of time. Go ahead. Let's uh, try to include—yes, I know the Iceman inheritance, absolutely. Most of the nastiness of our modern world comes from our, our past when we were in a great— Uh, scarcity, and there was a lot of competition, and we were very suspicious of outsiders. The Iceman Inheritance an excellent book. Absolutely, I had the pleasure of knowing Ursula K. Le Guin in life. Uh, Fabulous uh, female science fiction writer writing a lot about gender roles in science fiction, which has often been exploring that. Uh, And uh, Philip K. Dick, The Man in the High Castle. What a brilliant book. Apropos of what we've just been talking about, of course, it's about the Axis powers, Japan and um, and Hitler's Germany, mm-hmm. winning World War Two and us losing. And you asked about the, the name of the authors of um, the uh, book that the movie Oppenheimer is based on. The book is called American Prometheus. The authors are Martin J. Sherwin and Kai, K-A-I, Kai Bird. Marty Sherwin has passed away recently, but Kai is still with us. And uh, Christopher Nolan's film Oppenheimer is based on American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer.
0: Robert, we're going to take a short break and come back with final questions for you right here on Coast to Coast AM. And maybe you can tell us where we can get your book, The Oppenheimer Alternative. And welcome back to our final segment with Robert Sawyer, George Norrie with you here. Robert, uh, before we go on to other questions, where do we get your book, The Oppenheimer Alternative?
1: should be able to get The Oppenheimer Alternative at better bookstores, as the saying goes. It's available as an ebook from all your favorite ebook vendors as well. And there's a wonderful uh, version from uh, uh, as an audio book. You can get it at audible.com and other places that distribute audio books, uh, narrated by Josh Bloomberg, who does all the different accents of the various European characters. Uh, Spectacularly well. The Oppenheimer Alternative by me, Robert J. Sawyer. Bookstores, online, audio, your format. Take your pick. It's there for you.
0: What are the odds of us talking about J. Robert Oppenheimer? And we're talking to you, Robert J. Sawyer.
1: Well, you know what? It was interesting writing the book because uh, I had to do scenes where there's Robert Oppenheimer, his assistant, Robert Serber. Oppenheimer was grilled in his security hearing by Roger Robb, and the person who spoke most in his favor was the Nobel laureate I.I. Robbie. And it was enormously difficult to try and make all of those clear to the reader that they were different people. But those are the coincidences you're stuck with when you're writing about real people. You can't change their names. That's, yeah, yeah, these, these coincidences happen. The name Robb, you know, when I was born, 1960, Robert was one of the top 10 most popular voice names. Now it's not even in the top 50. So these things change as time goes by. I do.
0: What What are your thoughts of this renewed interest in UFOs or UAPs, as they're
1: calling well, it? Well, that's right, because we rebrand everything. You know, UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomenon or unidentified anomalous phenomenon, depending on which source you listen to. I think, you know, the reality is, of course, that when they were the first flying saucer sighting was 1947 you know uh when the term was coined flying saucer uh but at that time only the military had high speed high resolution cameras and now everybody does in their pocket on their phone so we're getting you know the point where people are collecting sightings of things with evidence as opposed to just anecdotal reports and i think that's part of what's uh you know, engendering all of this interest. And I also think the United States government, uh, you know, whenever a government is in trouble, uh, anything you can use to distract from the issues of the day uh, is all to the good. So when they say, oh, you know, rather than talk about the debt crisis or rather than talk about, you know, uh, uh, the uh, fraught political situation, let's talk about UFOs or UAPs right now. Look over here. I think is one of the reasons why even the government is drawing attention to it now.
0: Back to the phones. Brendan in Austin, Texas is with us. Hey, Brendan, go ahead.
4: Thank you, George and Robert and everybody listening. Uh, I don't do this lightly, but Lexi, a uh, coast-to-coast listener, needs to be on the prayer list. And thank you so much for everybody who prayed for my grandmother. But uh Lexie's a really kind person, so she deserves that.
0: What's her ailment, if you could tell us?
4: Um... I don't know if she wants me to say, but uh, I know that she's just been having a lot of pain. So that definitely would be part of it. But um, okay. so with uh, y'all were saying that we didn't want to drop bombs on, or we didn't want to drop a bomb on POWs. And with Nagasaki, we did. We dropped a bomb on an allied POW camp and left them there for 10 days to drink fallout water. So that's an interesting story. But last hour, Richard Hoagland had mentioned ancient artifacts in our solar system that are used as time capsules of the past for us to find. Currently, we have radioactive waste, which we're debating on how to communicate to the future that the area that it's in is dangerous, because our containers only last 50 years, and the waste takes tens of thousands of years to take around. And uh, we might lose it. Humanity could go extinct. Uh, Egyptians and Mayans use hieroglyphics and stone carvings to talk to the future. Do you think that, Robert, do you think that we could use AI as a method to preserve our species' history or even our personalities for posterity of the future? And do you think that it could even be possible to stop people from turning that into a cult? And I don't know what personalities we would use to have the AI talk to the future, but I don't know. Maybe George Norrie can come up like Obi-Wan in Star Wars as a holograph and talk to the to the aliens in the future. Huh. Well, one of the things that people talk about
1: in terms of artificial intelligence research is brain scanning and mind uploading. Uh, And, you know, uh, we have uh, right now uh, uh, Tom is the engineer who is uh, taking care of us as we do this broadcast here. Tom doesn't have to be a musical genius to make an absolutely perfect copy of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. So even though we don't yet understand where consciousness comes from, we know that it is somewhere in the connectome, somewhere in the fine structure of the human brain, or maybe down the spinal cord and distributed to the body, but confined to that physical space of our body, almost certainly. And so we may very well be able to scan it and duplicate it before we ever figure out the mystery of what causes it. And given that, we may indeed have a kind of digital Immortality, so that a hundred years, a thousand years, a million years from now, yes, somebody could ask George Nuri or me, Robert J. Sawyer, questions. The physical version of us may be long gone, but the uh, electronic, uh, immortal, digital, uploaded versions of us may uh, persist as long as uh, as the universe persists.
0: It is remarkable, is it not? And with science fiction writing. You let your mind wander. You could just about go anywhere with it, can't you?
1: Well, so I make a very sharp distinction between science fiction and fantasy. Science fiction is things that plausibly might happen. And fantasy are things that never could happen by definition. So I'm very much grounded. I'm what they call a hard science fiction writer. It doesn't mean my stories are difficult to read. I like to think they're very accessible but it means that the science is rigorous and the extrapolation is plausible. Uh, But, you know, as I mentioned earlier on, I'm a judge for the Writers of the Future contest. So is Gregory Benford. And The caller mentioned this effort to provide ways to communicate to the future about atomic waste sites. Greg, who's a physicist at the University of California, Irvine, uh, Professor Emeritus now, and also a great science fiction judge for the Writers of the Future contest is one of the people spearheading that effort to find ways to make symbolic representations that will make sense to people hundreds or thousands of years in the future. That even if they, you know, if we've been bombed back into the Stone Age, will still understand that this area is not to be dug up. A fascinating question.
0: Let's go to Joe, Long Island, New York. Hello, Joseph, go ahead.
1: Yeah, hi, Robert.
5: I have uh, two comments and then a two-part question on the writing process. Uh, First of all, uh, the book The Gray Wolf gives a name of uh, Hitler's double. He actually did have a double that they used extensively and they give the, the guy's name. So. Uh, That's interesting. A second thing is in the book, The Bells of Nagasaki, uh, it depicted that there was only a tire factory in Nagasaki that might have had anything to do with the war effort. And it basically was a huge Catholic city uh, near the coast. And that's the reason why uh, that was nuked by uh, America, as they did with... Dresden, where they firebombed it, because uh, a back section of Americans hated Catholics to that extent. Uh, and ground zero of the bomb was a Catholic church, St. Mary's with Catholic schoolgirls. So that that was the motive, and also to try the two different versions of the bomb, as you said, uh, on civilian, innocent civilian populations. But my question is... In writing your novel, two parts. One is when you look at the nuclear uh, possibilities in terms of, one, motivation, two, in terms of all the different types of nukes, uh, as depicted in that movie with Ben Affleck. It was in a soda machine, and there was an outblast from that from from the uh, Baltimore uh, ballpark. Where do you start with so many possibilities when you write something like that? And then on the AI, if you look at, for example, uh, Dr. Smith, uh, the, the robot is kind of like a confidant or uh, an ally that might betray the person. But could it also be that the person would betray the AI or the robot?
1: Right. Now, the robot you're referring to there is from Lost in Space. Dr. Smith, the character played by Jonathan Harris in the 1960s.
0: A classic. Uh, television
1: it? series, classic series. And indeed, there was a robot character in there who was both friend and confidant and helper. But in the first episode also goes berserk and uh, is, in fact, responsible for the mending up being lost in space. He destroys the navigation equipment. So, yeah, uh, robot friend or foe of course, design them in terms of the ones that are going to be commercially available to be our friends. But, you know, people die in automobile accidents and plane crashes. And no matter what technology we build, uh, it can go wrong and kill people. So we have to be very much alert to that. I will say about the bombing of uh, Nagasaki,
0: well, which, uh, which, by the way, was the third city they had chosen. They decided to change
1: it. That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, because of the bad weather on the day. Everybody knows
0: that- And there are two of Japan's largest battleships in Nagasaki Harbor.
1: Yes, very true. Uh, everybody knows that Enola Gay was the name of the plane that uh, dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. Boxcar, B-O-C-K apostrophe S, Boxcar was the one that dropped the bomb on Nagasaki. But when it took off from Tinian Air Base, its goal had been Kokura, And it was simply that Kokura was overcast. The bombardier aboard the bombing plane could not see the ground to aim his target. And so they had to fly on to uh, Nagasaki, which had been preselected. The caller is absolutely right that it was preselected and for reasons. But it was definitely a backup target, not the primary.
0: Right. And it was backup primarily because it didn't have a lot of
1: people. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Fiction. Uh, I start with research. I am absolutely grounded in reading all kinds of science, science history, science philosophy, uh, and speculative science. Uh, uh, Michael Shermer, who is, uh, I understand, going to be the guest, I guess, on the show tomorrow. Tomorrow night. That's right. Uh, Fascinating guy. And, you know, uh, you do your research first with an open mind, looking for things that are going to be exciting to dramatize or speculate about. And I will just again say to anybody who's written a science fiction story, please enter our contest, writersofthefuture.com, for the rules, no entry fees. The biggest, uh, the judges are the biggest names in science fiction writing, and uh, we've launched so many great careers.
0: That's great. Do you know Mark Zakree by any chance?
1: Uh, I certainly do know Mark. Yes, nice. a wonderful guy, friend. Great writer wrote the best episode of Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, Far Beyond the Stars. Uh, absolutely, Mark Scott Zickry, and of course, huge, huge expert, world class expert on the Twilight. Oh my God, yes,
0: absolutely, and a dear friend of us. Uh, he's been around wonderful
1: for guy a long time.
0: Let's let's go back to the calls. Jim in Portland, Oregon. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jimmy, go ahead.
1: Oh, hi, fellas. I was wondering if you could tell us um, about General Groves and his personal or not personal professional professional relationship with uh robert oppenheimer i heard he was insistent oppenheimer have that top job that's absolutely true and against the advice of everybody else in fact one of oppenheimer's colleagues at the university of california Berkeley, the professor glenn Oppy, was chosen by groves said oppenheimer that man couldn't run a hamburger stand Oppenheimer uh, was chosen by Groves in large measure because Oppenheimer gave straight answers to Groves's questions. Groves had asked Leo Zillard, for instance, at the University of Chicago, uh, for an estimate of how long it would take to do something. And then he asked, how, long, how precise is your ex- estimate? And Zillard said, within a factor of 10. And Oppenheimer would give precise answers And also would never shy away from a question. And that meant a lot. Also, I have to say that Groves, for all of his virtues, and he had a lot of them, was also a man of his time. And he liked the fact that Oppenheimer was a native-born American citizen, as opposed to a number of other people. For instance, they would not let Einstein work on the Manhattan Project uh, because Einstein, of course, uh, was born, was German. And uh, we were at war with Germany, and there was some question in groves's mind of einstein's loyalty really so yeah, yeah, oh absolutely, yeah, Einstein, even though Einstein started the Manhattan Project in the sense that he's the one who sent a letter oh, it was his to FDR, that's right, and said, well, it was Leo Zillard who wrote the letter, uh, but Einstein you know Ziller didn't have a name, so Einstein signed it, sent it to FDR, saying we've got to have a project we've got to we got to seriously do this before other people do it first.
0: Robert, the clock has got us. Thank you. We'll keep in touch. Let's come back more than just three years ago. Robert J. Sawyer. His book is called The Oppenheimer Alternative. For Dan Galanti, Tom Danheiser, Lisa Lyon, Lex Lonehood, Sean LaDosore, Stephanie Smith, Chris Burroughs, Tim Banal, Ian Punnett, and George Knapp, I'm George Norrie somewhere out there on Coast to Coast AM. We'll see you on our next edition. Until then, be safe, everyone.